What's up, y'all? You've tuned into the Pop Politics Podcast with me, Monique Alicia Gamble. I'm a professor, a screenwriter, and a photographer. And this show is a fusion of two things that I love to talk about, politics and pop culture. So let's get to it. So we are live on the Pop Politics Podcast, and I am joined by Ben Hofschneider. He's here to chat with me about politics. We will also be joined, hopefully, by Dr. Sheila Harmon-Martin, who is one of my colleagues in the political science program at the University of the District of Columbia. And another of um, our students, Carmen Lewis, should be joining us soon. But in the meantime, we will hang out with Ben and chit-chat a little bit um, before the rest of the folks join us. So welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time this evening. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Dr. Gamble. Hello, this is Carmilla. Hi, Carmilla. Right on time. I'm happy to have y'all here with me, and I'm going to open the floor to you guys to first introduce yourselves to our audience. Start with Ben, and then Carmilla, if you're ready, jump on in. Well, uh, hello, everybody. as Dr. Gamble already said, I'm Ben Hofschneider. I'm a senior political science major at UDC. Um, I'm a Washingtonian with a lot of passion for local and national movements, DC statehood being a personal pride of mine, 51 for 51. Um, and yeah, I outside of school, I coach water polo. Um, and play probably more video games than I should, but that's that's me. Thank you, Ben. Um, I think Dr. Martin is here too. Hi, I'm here. <laughs> hey, Dr. Martin, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Gamble. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have Ben and I have Carmilla, and Hi, ben. you have just joined us. Carmilla, will you introduce yourself to us, and then Dr. Martin will be our encore. Okay, well, I'm Carmilla uh, Lemon. Uh, I'm currently in Dr. Gamble's um, Methods of Political Science Research class. I really enjoy her class. She's a great professor. Um, I've also had Dr. Martin as well. I'll be a senior in the fall. I'm really uh, deep into research and um, the Black experience all the way around. And um, I dabble a little in the D.C. political scene. Um, and I look forward to tonight's broadcast. Fantastic. Thank you, Carmela. And Dr. Martin, who are you, Dr. Martin? <laughs> who am I? <laughs> I am Dr. Sheila Harmon Martin, um, professor of political science, previously served as chair of the Division of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the University of the District of Columbia. I teach Black politics, American government, and just got out of a legislative process class. So I'm excited to join you all tonight. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Thank all of you for taking the time to have a little bit of a chat with me this evening. Um, I want to keep it relatively casual. I have uh, a few questions just as the session points, and we'll let it flow naturally from there. Um, as I mentioned, the conversation, the discussion that we're having tonight is sort of taking an analytical look at um, American government, 
the institution of American government, the institution of democracy um, in the United States following Donald Trump's presidency and sort of ascending into Joe Biden's presidency. Uh, all of your comments are welcome and fair game. So let me start with Donald Trump. The only question I'll ask about this dude, I promise. But I want to know what y'all think the legacy of Donald Trump's presidency will be, both on the electorate and on the institution of American government. What do you think has stuck, either for good or bad, from Donald Trump's presidency? May I uh, say my little piece and be quiet? <clears throat> Absolutely. I don't want you quiet, but go for it. You got it. <laughs> and this is because I'm I'm disturbed about this. I think he's gonna several things will be a part of his legacy, but what I'm particularly concerned about is his impact on the judiciary system, the federal judiciary mm -hmm. system. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that that you know he was successful in in um, nominating 274 judgeships, but, and the Senate approved 234 of them. 80%, right. I mean, what, over 80% white male, over 70%, um, I mean, over 80% white, over 70% male, you know, many of whom the American Bar Association, uh, you know, uh, declared were not qualified for the position. But the reality is that they are threaded throughout the federal judiciary. Now, maybe my anxiety should not be as high as it is if some of the decisions made by Trump-appointed judges, um, you know, over the big lie, you know, I mean, they did not support him. So maybe um, my anxiety is unwarranted, but because we know these are lifetime appointments, I am concerned about that part of his legacy. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I, we, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, and um, one of the things I was thinking about on that too, just like you mentioned, their lifetime appointments and the people that he's nominated, I, I was wondering what the percentage of folks under the age of, say, 60 are. It seems like a lot of those um, judgeships are held by, by people somewhere between like 45 and 60 almost guaranteeing, you know, they're going to be in this position probably for the next generation or two. Uh, so I... Yeah. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. In fact, you know, one of his appointees, the young woman, she's 35 years old. Mm -hmm. the, uh, what, the district court, 35 years old, only, what, eight years out of law school. Wow. That's, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. Carmilla or Ben... Either of you, what do you think is the legacy um, of Donald Trump? Yeah, go ahead, Carmela. Well, I feel I feel as though Trump's presidency really has like put a damper on democracy mm. and the tone that he set while in office has like, you know, really divided a lot in the country. And I feel and with the passage of what Governor Kemp just did, I think that's a direct result 
of his presidency, um, his claims after the election. So I think it, it has trickled down a lot. Like uh, Dr. Martin said with the judgeships, now with, you know, these laws, um, the insurrection, the, the hate has that has reverberated from that. And it, man, his legacy is not looking so good. Um, <laughs> lots of negativity from it. Indeed. You know, there are lessons learned that should be learned, rather, from the Trump experience. And that is the fragility of democracy. Mm, I think that one Mm -hmm. lesson that Trump taught us is that we were so used to so many what I consider norms as it related to the presidency. I forgot, and I think many of us forgot, that they were a part of tradition mm-hmm. and not law. A big difference. So he showed us that, for example, I mean, just something as simple as showing your tax records in order to run for president of the United States. You know, I think most Americans thought that was a requirement. But it was just tradition. And he refused to do it. And and I don't know, I think now in a few more months, we're going to find out about his taxes. I mean, and just so many things that he he did to, to just violate norms and also other things that violated tradition. And you start saying, oh, wow, you know, that's really not against the law. Mm-hmm. So... That's, you know, I think that's an aspect of his legacy that was a lesson to all of us. But it's also, I think, a lesson that we should learn from and see where we can, you know, repair those areas of our democracy and of our system. And, you know, it's just so many things that we, I mean, just basic ethics that I think that, you know, we we took for granted. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I just, and of course, the framers had never envisioned, I don't think, a person like Trump uh, becoming a, a president. But he also expressed some of the fears of the framers in terms mm-hmm. of the executive. Mm-hmm. I'd like to add a little bit onto that, if I can. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I... Uh, something that you said there, Dr. Harmon Martin, that really, uh, really caught my ear was um, talking about sort of addressing the failures of our democracy. Um, no, I think the fragility. Said, the fragility. fragility. Yeah, yes, you're right. The fragility um, of our democracy. And then what you said at the end there about sort of President Trump not being what the framers had envisioned. I remember in 2016. Um, watching the election happen and thinking it's it's been said before that the uh, the founding fathers were were terrified of the American electorate and mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons that mm-hmm. we operate in a republic and that there are of course the checks and balances that first come to mind of between the judicial and legislative and executive but there's also l- multiple levels of checks and balances on the American people and their decision making. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. to protect them from themselves. And mm-hmm. I think in 2016, watching every single one of those security measures fail, allowing mm-hmm. a man like Donald Trump into the executive means that I, I would honestly push past addressing the, the fragility in our democracy mm-hmm. and say that this the 2016 election showed that there are cracks in our mm-hmm. democracy. Mm-hmm. The system that is made to protect the American ideal, the American promise, and the American people failed for four years. Mm-hmm. And that means that the system is not just fragile, it is in some way broken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll throw into this. Um, I, I think about it in terms of um, this is a, a much more colorful word, uh, but I think about it as the, the rot in American political culture. Uh, when mm-hmm. I think about Donald Trump starting his presidency, starting his campaign um, with overt racism, mm-hmm. and that not being a deal breaker for millions of American voters. In fact, that that right overt mm-hmm. expression of racism being something that endeared this man to a large part of the American electorate. And as it relates to, I'll, and I'll, I'll take, I'm with uh, Dr. Martin on this one, I'll take this notion of the fragility of American democracy in think, and, and in American institutions and thinking about the insurrection uh, and the fact that mm-hmm. we're even calling it an insurrection and sedition because that's exactly what it is. And mm-hmm. the way that that experience that we all had on January 6th has not been one that has been elevated to a really um, national conversation, like a, a minute where the, the country mm-hmm. stops to have a conversation about the fact that in 2021, a president incited an insurrection. And some mm-hmm. of the people who were involved in that, which includes um, sitting Congress members to this day, will not be punished. We, we're waiting for it. To your point, Ben, we're waiting for some sense of accountability, maybe in the next midterm election, maybe. But in terms maybe. of having a much, you know, a much larger national conversation about how serious that was, it makes me think back to um, the Reconstruction, when mm-hmm. after you know the, the Confederate soldiers, after a Confederate congresspersons were congressmen, were known to be a part of the secession of the southern states and you know for a little while for those first few years of reconstruction of course yeah they were kind of banished but within those 10 years they were welcomed right back and so what do you expect of a political system that does not banish the toxic parts of it that instead welcomes it when i talk about a a rot that exists within the foundation of american political culture we're seeing that you know reconstruction 1870 1865, 1870, somewhere around there. Here we are seeing some of the, the vestiges of that in 2021. Same, some of the same racist imagery, some of the same racist rhetoric, and it, it's allowed to stand. And that's the part that um, concerns me. It's the part, it's not even a matter of concern at this, at this point. It's the part that um, is gross to me. It's gross you mm-hmm. Know, mm-hmm. Um, about the specter of American government. You know, Dr. Gamble, that is a re- really good point. I'm sorry, Camilla, you want to speak? I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to make a quick comment um, concerning the insurrection. Um, I think it was a lot of 
key factors that play, played into that moment. But I think the main one is a direct result of Trump's narcissism. Like, mm. he would rather put this on people and make it their fight and rather than succeed or admit defeat. You know, he would rather take it to those levels than mm-hmm. admit the defeat. So I, uh, another negative aspect of Trump. <laughs> so let's let's talk about uh joe biden a little bit then because we're going from from trump to to biden right um he just unveiled a i think it's a one or two trillion dollar um infrastructure plan uh unlike donald trump it is infrastructure week this time around um <laughs> that's right <laughs> so talk about you know we're, we're only a few couple months into joe biden's term um but where do you think we're headed is has there been enough time for you to rate the beginning the very beginning of joe biden's term um if it was a one to five scale where do you think he lands so far five being fantastic we're happy with where we're headed one being trash well i would definitely tell you i'm feeling a five One reason why I'm feeling a five, I mean, several reasons, I can give you a lot of reasons. The first reason is that I'm presently an emancipated senior because I've had two doses of the vaccine. (laughs) And every day, (laughs) I'm an emancipated senior. I'm still going to observe all the safety precautions. But every day, I see the numbers of people in America receiving this vaccine and when I think about uh, of course I'm still uh, disturbed by what's happening I was just watching um, you know what's happening in Florida and DeSantis today you know saying that uh, you know businesses can't have that vaccine uh, passport you know there's some discussions about a a vaccine passport and Mm -hmm. the thing is I like to remind people that you know, we've always had to have some kind of vaccination passport. If you've ever traveled to certain countries, you know, before you go to certain countries, you have right. to have certain vaccines and you have to have that little document uh, that looks almost like a little passport to show that you had those particular vaccines. So a vaccine passport is nothing new. Mm-hmm. And and the big issue is that, you know, the cruise ships want to... Um, on the one hand, he wants the cruise ships to be allowed to start sailing and is threatening to sue the CDC, but at the same time is saying that, you know, private businesses cannot require these vaccines. So I think what Joe Biden has done around the vaccines, I think it's incredible. You know, although people are still dying, but we, you know, the, the hospital rates, and, well, they're beginning to surge back up, but still, right, right. I think what he's done around that particular piece is absolutely fantastic. The infrastructure uh, today is, is really right at almost $2 trillion, and of course, the Republicans are already pushing back, and there's too much money. You know, it's always too much money mm-hmm. when it's not their particular proposal. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and he's talking about a tax hike. But if you look at who he's talking about taxing, okay, I don't see anything wrong with taxing, um, you know, uh, people who have the kind of $186 billion um, right. and using millions of dollars to keep uh, folks from organizing in Alabama taxes. Oh, you know, so, mm-hmm. so I was thinking about five, um, and especially for his judicial nominations yesterday. I'm quite satisfied with his actions so far. Um, he's been doing a lot for the rollout with the vaccine, and everybody's received their round of stimulus checks, and um, he's pushed a lot of legislation, especially during his first. 30 days in office, he pushed a lot of legislation. So I think it looks good so far, but I'm the type of person I need more time, I need more numbers, I need more, you know, a, a larger scope to look at before I can say how he's done. If I were to compare it to his vice presidency under Obama, then I would say he's probably going to do a great job. That's what he's been doing so far, so you know we'll keep it at that. Okay. Then you went one in on this too. Yeah, I'd say he's uh, he's coming in at a, a four for me. I okay. think that there were there are things that he has done an exceptional job with, and I I don't want to shift focus away from the fact that especially when it comes to public health in the coronavirus pandemic there are Mm -hmm. leaps and bounds that we have made that would not have been possible with donald trump still as president i do think that there are problems that he and his camp had a good bit of time plan emergency solutions for that he has really let me down on. The main one of those mm-hmm. for me would be the border. Um, okay. mm-hmm. I have a pretty strong relationship with uh, when I was in high school I was lucky enough to get to spend um, some time in Nogales, Arizona and Nogales, Sonora, Mexico um, working with a group called the Kino Border Initiative um, which provides services to recently deported migrants and I still have a lot of connections with the people that I've worked with down there and Mm -hmm. talking to the people on the ground the situation has not changed Mm -hmm. and I, I fully recognize that it is very complex in that building a functional system and bringing a complete end to the injustice that happens there will take five, ten years, fifteen years, maybe even longer. But the fact that nothing has changed really concerns me. The fact that the Biden administration is using the same bits of U.S. code that the Trump administration was using to deport people concerns me. The Mm -hmm. fact that the Biden administration is using Title 42 to deport black Haitians into Mexico instead of returning them to Haiti concerns me. Mm -hmm. 
and I really struggle to say that he's doing a great job and doing a five out of five job when stuff like that is still happening. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's fair. Um, you know what? So so that takes me to, the, to my next question then. Um, if you had a, a Biden administration priority list, what's on it? What's at the top of your, your, your Biden priority list? Let me let me go first. Um, if I were to rate the Biden administration at this point, I'm um, I see I take your point here, uh, Ben and Carmilla, uh, who practices um, reluctance. <laughs> what it sounds like, he's like I'm not gonna give him a five just yet. Um, I think I'm at somewhere between a three and a four, uh, and mm-hmm. this leads into my uh, priority list. You know. I'm a first generation PhD. Uh, I come from a, a family of working class, middle class family from Phoenix City, Alabama. Um, I'm lucky enough that my parents managed to put me through four years of undergrad and then I tacked on lots of loans for grad school. The very top of my priority list is student loan forgiveness. I don't want to hear nothing about, I mean, you know, let me not be like that. I, I recognize that $50,000, if it happens, is a major victory for a lot of people. It is. And I'm not taking any of that away from anybody. But I need it all gone. So, um, the top three, uh, easily, on my Biden, Biden administration priority list is student loan reform, uh, student loan forgiveness. And the fact that that, and I recognize too, that there are a lot of other major issues that have bubbled up over the last several months. And so I get how student loans may fall lower on that priority list. That's definitely something that I want to see. I would be, uh, I think my rating would probably plummet to a one if we get to the end of this first term and there isn't any major legislation on student loans. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like I said, I, I'm willing to go with, I get taking, you know, quite a bit off the top and I respect that, but I'm looking for the full thing gone, if I'm being honest. Where the rest of y'all stand? I was just thinking about your student loan piece and, um, and I was thinking, oh, how much that's a generational issue. Uh, no, mm-hmm. no, but I'm just talking about me personally. I was listening to you and I said, oh, wow. Yeah, because I mean, I can, I can relate to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, oh, I'm thinking about my health because I'm old. <laughs> and then I said, you know, but but I said I can understand why student loan. I never would, and seeing my I, my list, student loan would never have been on my priority because, of course, my education was during a different period mm-hmm. when I didn't have to pay for it, even a PhD, because it was during that era of of uh, the 70s and you know the benefits of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and 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 uh and although my family situation was exactly like yours i'm the first mm-hmm. phd in my family uh and you know and and then my child is fortunate because i only had one so i paid for education but i understand the importance and how that would be a big big issue i just had not thought about it and i appreciate that i understand that that being your number one agenda and mm-hmm. uh i mean number one priority and of course for 
you know, probably the baby boomers, my generation, you know, we are thinking, you know, the health piece was mm -hmm. so important for me. But see, there are just so many important issues mm -hmm. um, that we all have to prioritize and think about and and make sure that our voices are heard. You know, I, I listened to what Ben had uh, mentioned, and of course, I don't have that kind of direct contact. I'm only seeing what I see uh, on television. And, you know, I, I saw the children being taken to uh, the facilities in Dallas and improvement. But of course, the other piece that you mentioned about the deportation, um, you know, I was not as aware about that. I know people are still being so I think all those issues are very important, and I can understand fully how we each came to our different ratings. Yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Martin, the the top of your priority list is the healthcare. Is healthcare? Yeah, the health, the okay. vaccination, the vaccination. health piece. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, you know, because um, you know when I when when that the pandemic was. You know, it was wiping out my generation, so to speak, the generation, mm -hmm. you know, so, um, so it became a, you know, I found myself, my parents, I'm blessed, they're still alive there in their 90s. Yep. So the, mm -hmm. the pandemic became just really um, extremely frightening for me when I started thinking about, um, you know, my loved ones and my family. And then, yeah. you know, the first time I went home uh, during the pandemic, two weeks later, my cousin I had just seen in church and his mother, they both were dead. So, wow. you know, in a matter of two weeks. So, so that, so that sort of shaped my, oh my goodness, are we going to survive through this? Uh, you know, all the confusion around the science and, you know, and the efforts to try to get people to understand that this was serious, that became almost, you know, it became a major concern for me. And mm -hmm. um, and I really un began to understand how people, how mentally this was impacting them. Yeah. Um, just like I'm going to throw in here as a thread, because this is also a major concern of mine, uh, is you know the whole issue of social justice and 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 um, an equality for all people in the American political system. You know, my students. Uh, we've been trying to talk about this Derek show, a show been a trial. It's been everybody's admitting how it's so difficult for them to watch. And I've always, you know, I I find myself thinking about trauma that that these continuing side effect of all these cases is the trauma that it leaves on us as individuals and in our community. <laughs> you know, I'm today watching the, someone break down on, you know, trying to testify uh, and just feeling the sadness of all these people who basically are blaming themselves because they felt that they should have done more. Yeah. So it's like when as a nation and a country, we're going to have a, you talked about honest conversation, you know, about racism, you know, um, and that didn't happen when Donald Trump came out down the escalator and, and spewed all that racism and look at all the rat, how that just spirals in all groups in society, um, um, minority 
groups and people of color, you know, just the last four years. I mean, if we just stop and think about all, all the attacks that we know about and all mm-hmm. those, and then there's so many we don't know about. Yeah. And it's like you said, it's a rock. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's the perfect way to describe it. Festering. Mm-hmm. It sucks. Um, uh, Carmilla, what's on the, the top of your uh, Biden administration priority list? Social justice, um, diversity, equity, inclusion, the whole DEAI still is very important for me. Um, that's at the top of my list. Um, I'm also totally rooting for the loan forgiveness um, <laughs> and anything that can be done to sort of help the country return to normalcy. Um, I think that he should be pushing all of those, you know, agendas. But because the job of the president is so enormous, it's like I, I know a lot of things get overlooked, like those um, lesser known things in the media such as you know what Ben was talking about so uh, uh, those really important issues that may not get the attention that they need I think uh, that and yeah basically the return to normalcy is he needs to be doing everything that he can to to push that agenda okay I feel that. I think, you know, what's, what's interesting, I, I like that you said a return to normalcy. I know that there's a lot of, um, that there are a lot of challenges that we are faced with, you know, in this era, period. Like wherever you, wherever you stand, be it issues of housing, issues of um, trying to find a, a decent job, trying to find health care, uh, looking for a decent partner to, to spend your life with. You know, there, there are a number of challenges that just sort of, exist out here and I think in some ways we have underestimated a sense of normalcy what's crazy about that though is some people's normalcy that we want to return to is still <laughs> toxic it's still deeply problematic you know and and just for how bad this last year has been we're almost seeking a return to a thing that's less bad as a bomb for how bad this has been and that's that's interesting. It kind of reminds me of when you have the two separate piles, and this is your pile of problems, and you look at somebody <laughs> else's pile who's ten feet taller than yours. You're like, okay, I'll stick with my little pile. Of right. You know, right. it's like yeah. the enormity of it is like, can we just scale it back a little because it's been so you know robust and, and thrown at us all at once. Um, with the pandemic and the Trump presidency and everything that's come along with 2020 and the shakeup and everything. So, yeah, just just a little more normal, a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's take my, my smaller pile of problems. I hear that. Um, ben, what's on your priority list? At the top of your priority list. All right. So... All right, I was going to say, are we doing top three or are we doing top one or what's the... Uh, <laughs> whatever you feel, whatever, whatever's on your side. All right, right well, I've got, I've got top three on my mind here, so I'll, okay. uh, I'll try not to take up too much time with it. Um, I think to go from the bottom to the top, number three is infrastructure. And I think that the plan that Biden has introduced is a excellent first step 
Okay. Mm-hmm. But I do not think he will hit the priority if this is it. Sure. Okay. I think that this 15-year plan is a great first step, but we started falling behind in infrastructure well more than 15 years ago. And it's going to take a lot more than 15 years of work for us to catch up. Um, I know that, so I'm a dual citizen here and in the UK. And while there are a handful of things that I definitely prefer the US approach on, infrastructure in the UK, healthcare infrastructure, transit infrastructure, social services in general and the infrastructure that comes with them is so much stronger because of continued investment and a 15-year plan is not going to set us up for victory it's going to set us up to catch up it it would be the equivalent of upgrading to the iphone 6. Ooh, that hurts (laughs) we need to do more um however and this is number two here um uh hailing to your top priority dr gamble loan forgiveness and a brand as part of a brand new approach to the federal budget (laughs) the existing budget doesn't work funds don't go where they should go it fails to build revenue for the federal government and it fails to promote economic growth businesses and for individuals people are already talking about the chamber of commerce is already talking about how concerned they are that biden is going to be unable to generate the funds for this infrastructure plan Mm -hmm. they're saying that they're worried that the infrastructure plan is going to be too much of a change for a country that is still needing stimulus in its economy coming out of the coronavirus pandemic and the easiest way to fix that the easiest way to return money to everyday american pockets so that they can go out and reinvest that money in our infrastructure and in our society is to stop them from paying 800 1000 2000 a month in student loan payments And my my last one, my number one priority is anti-discrimination legislation with a strong enforcement arm that is focusing on three things, redistricting, law enforcement, and voter suppression. Mm-hmm. Because while infrastructure is necessary for the long-term success of America and loan forgiveness and funding shifts are necessary for evening the playing field there's no point in evening that playing field if the people that we're trying to bring up are still dying mm-hmm. yeah. are still lacking the representation that they need to fight for their own lives mm-hmm. that's, that's, a solid my three. that's a solid three Ben pretty good um yeah, but I keep saying you guys got to help. You got to put the healthcare infrastructure in there because if you do not have healthy people, you know, um, you can have all those things. But if people 
don't have their health, they can't have those jobs, they can't, you know, um, I think about how we still have such a need for the National Association of Free Clinics Mm -hmm. in this country because so many people, and especially we know that the pandemic has highlighted this, the health care of so many people, which is part, just a small part of the reason so many people died. Right. Because we don't have hospitals in so many areas throughout the United States, not just in the rural areas of the United States, in our urban areas too, in our city, right down the street. You know, it has to be part of the the priority of this country. Affordable housing, people not having places to stay. I mean, it's a lot. I think we all agree it's a lot that needs to be fixed. But the other thing too, even with all our priority lists, unless the attitude of those who make decisions for us in Congress and especially the Senate and, uh, you know, Republicans, and I'm not saying Democrats are perfect, but unless they start, you know, seeing how we can work together to fix this instead of coming out with the criticisms without fully having read the proposed bill, like we're already seeing on the internet, and Mitch McConnell speaking, um, you know, what cannot be done, and it's just, mm-hmm. what, three hours, maybe less than four hours since the president introduced the proposal, mm-hmm. you know, as long as we keep fighting and saying, no, we can't do it. It won't get done. And I've heard the statements too often when they say that the rich hate the poor or um, that uh, there's something about people in America, you know, in America who that they hate the poor, you know, and you begin to say when I first used to hear people say that, you know, I had mixed feelings about it, but more and more. I begin to feel like, you know, perhaps they are right. And why is that? Mm-hmm. Even the people who claim that they're so, you know, all about Christianity. But yet, when we talk about the least, and they will say the least of these. But, but they won't do what we need to do to take care of the least of these. But we'll do what we have to do to take care of those with money. Yeah, and and to your point there, you know, this each time, uh, and I'm with you. I, it, it's almost like whenever you have these kinds of conversations, you almost have to say, like, I, you know, I'm not trying to be partisan here. I mean, mm-hmm. but the parties have kind of Democrats have their issues too, and there's a, I think that there's a mm-hmm. piece of that party that's also very stuck um, in this um, corporatist sort of mindset, and they're they're yeah. not a, enough. Um, who are paying attention to the issue of working people, uh, pe- uh, working people, the working poor, and people who are uh, whatever we define as in- impoverished or poor. Um, mm-hmm. But the kind of um, egregiousness of the Republican way of dealing with it, it's just, it's almost, it's stunning 
you know, how clear the, the, the decisions that they make are, the way that they, uh, Mitch McConnell will look at a $2 trillion tax cut for people who are already making millions of dollars or more and won't bat an eye. But when it's a question of $2 trillion for COVID relief to give regular folks $1,200 um, to, to last them for who knows how long, then it's like, hold up, wait a minute, we're spending too much money. And that, the, the egregiousness of that kind of disingenuousness, it's just, it's stunning to me. I mean, mm-hmm. not stunning in the sense that it's surprising, but just at, at how, you know, people can say that with their full chest and feel no sense of uh, recrimination from it. Think about and talk about activism and the organizing that's happened over the last, beyond um, election 2020. This is, we've seen these things kind of percolating up, uh, I'd say since 2016, since 2017, 2018. Um, there was a lot of energy. This was in 2020, that was the, the largest turnout that we've had in decades. And I'm wondering if y'all think that that kind of energy can be sustained going forward. I think probably all of us on this call right now would, would probably agree that it has to be there, that it's necessary, you know, for a healthy functioning democracy. But as many of y'all have mentioned, um, there are dozens, at least two dozen states that are uh, on the path to create super restrictive um, voter suppression laws. So there's there's clearly you know some, there's there's clearly something that people understand and know about the power of voting. How do we translate that into a sustained um, energy, a sustained voting activity for the electorate going going forward? Yeah. Well, I was going to say that I would answer that in terms of of someone who I really enjoy. Uh, her work, and that's Stacey Abrams, of course, mm-hmm. and the work that she has put into um, trying to build up the um, election process across the country, really, but especially in Georgia. Uh, I feel as though her work can be an example for us all as a way to do things in in this new day and age. And um, she was very disheartened, I would say, at the uh, results of uh, Republican Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and his um, new Georgia election laws. And she actually called them Jim Crow 2.0. And that has really caught on as a new, you know, saying. So I think that um, we have to take a step back from what happened in Georgia and start to... Uh, focus on these other states that have these House resolutions trying to get through um, before you know it, you can have a whole lot of Georgia. Mm-hmm. So, um, it definitely needs to focus on um, fighting these um, House resolutions before they are, are passed and uh, focusing on all the strategies that we can to um, suppress the suppressors. Nice. Ben, you want in on this? 
Yeah, I think uh, as Carmilla said, I mean, I think for the rest of our lives, when we talk about voter activation and voter outreach, the, per- the first person in our minds is going to be Stacey Abrams. It, it is not possible to overstate the value of the work that she did in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I, that she serves as an inspiration for like-minded people around the country, because at the end of the day, we need that everywhere to make the changes that we realize need to be made. Um, Without that level of activation, without that level of involvement and reminder and outreach, we are never going to get people as passionate as the right has managed to. I think that um, we were talking a little bit about this earlier, Dr. Gamble, um, earlier today. The difference between the like voting drivers of the left and the voting drivers of the right, when you have a Republican conservative bloc that is largely driven by religious conservatism, it is very difficult outside of truly appalling behavior by men like Donald Trump to get liberals as fired up about an issue as Republicans will be fired up about abortion, as Republicans will be fired up about gay marriage. And at the end of the day, we need Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams is um, <laughs> to drive that fire and remind us that we're to remind us what not only what we're fighting for, but also what will happen if we stop fighting. Yeah. You know, and I would like to add, you know, and I think all credit due to Stacey Abrams, but I, but I also want to say you have to remember that that Stacey Abrams built everything that she did based upon her life experience and what and and the foundation of the civil rights movement and the struggle of black people throughout the history of this country and she built upon that and we have to keep building upon that you know um it's almost like uh, I can't think of it right adage now when when you have a taste of something and then it's taken away and you're more determined to have it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like that energy, because you asked about the sustaining of the energy, the energy that I saw this summer among young people, I mean, for me, it was such a sense of pride because you know, I was old and I was too scared to go out there in March. But it was such a sense of pride, and I felt that that this is a perfect example of knowing that the future be okay because those young people are, you know, they're not going to allow things to return 
to where it was pre-civil rights era. It's like, we're not going to go back. Uh, and right. what? And I've heard Stacey Abrams and, and uh, Latasha Brown and all of them talk about how now, you know, the more you try to take away people's ability to vote now, they're going to they're gonna fight harder to to have that to, to to participate in the vote. Just I mean, you saw just today, just the last few hours. Yesterday, uh, the the minister from Georgia, they were in front of Coca Cola and Delta and 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 demonstrating and and really letting them know they were dissatisfied with that tepid response that they had, um, you know, released in a press release regarding the voter suppression. Uh, uh, laws that have been passed by the state legislature and already mm-hmm. just, you know, uh, De- Delta CEO and Georgia governor get heated and a voter law square off. Those are the headlines. Delta and Coca-Cola pivot on Georgia restricted voting law. And that's because the people were out there and they said, you know what? No, we're not going to accept this. Right. You know, we're going to go back to <laughs> just think about the early civil rights movements when black people began to boycott the Montgomery bus bar, uh, uh, the buses. They began to boycott all those stores and all those southern cities that would not allow them to try, try on hats or clothes but wanted their money. What happened when they began to use the power that we have that sometimes we forget about? I feel so good about the young young people. I mean, I tell my students, the students, I had so many students who participated in local politics on election day, you know, that were um, poll watchers and and um, elect, election officials, both in D.C. You remember D.C. made a call. And you, do you know 7,000 young people volunteered to work in D.C. local elections on November? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, so I think that that and and, I, and I've heard so many students say, you know, that opportunity once you know once you you participate in a demonstration, you get the bug. You really do. I remember mm-hmm. my very first demonstration, uh, you know, fighting for uh, anti-apartheid in South Africa and and, and the civil rights uh, when I was in college. You just get the bug, and. Um, so I, I'm, I feel optimistic about our our future. I think we're going to be able to sustain that energy, but it's going to be a, a, a it was going to be a long battle. All I can say is, luta continua. The struggle continues. Thank y'all so much for keeping this interesting and an engaging discussion and being fully present. I'm super grateful um, for your time. Thank you, Carmilla. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Dr. Martin, for your evening. I really appreciate it. We have to do this again sometime. Yes. And Ben and Carmilla, so nice. I think I've seen Carmilla. I mean, I've heard from her two days in a row. I feel honored. <laughs>